The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Trains cancelled, operations delayed, cold and collapsing classrooms. Why has the fabric of the UK reached breaking point? Is it part of an inability or an unwillingness to fund the maintenance of our society? Are we living beyond our means? Are there new steps a new government could take to make sure that things work, that the system that we pay for actually functions for everyone? Can Britain be mended? The why curve. So I think it was David Cameron, wasn't it, who coined the, the phrase broken Britain? I mean, some people would argue that in the end of the day, he then went on to really break it. <laughs> but I mean, he, at the time, his point was it was all about crime, yeah, teenage yeah, yeah. pregnancies, yeah, yeah. all that sort of but stuff. But it's we, a different thing now. I mean, it's it more is. to do with the, the basic things, the train, central system, education, hospitals, mm. uh, getting a GP, getting NHS dentists. I mean, all the systems that are there yeah. supposedly still functioning and actually aren't. No. And then, you know, council's going bankrupt as well. Yeah. In fact, wherever you look, you know, it's just like, it doesn't feel like anything's Things are working. working quite as well yeah. as it should. I mean, when you start to get schools falling apart, mm-hmm. concrete crumbling, uh, you, there's something badly wrong, well, isn't it's, there? it's all to do with maintenance. You, know, you have systems, whether it's systems or buildings, whatever it is, you maintain them. You try and make sure they keep working. And that seems, it's, it seems to me, is what hasn't been going on. Now, whether that's to do with Government short-termism, lack of money. I mean, I don't know. Well, the government will say it's lack of money. Well, you know, they'll say, well, we can't spend any more. And that, that is the question. How do you make things stack up? Because we went through a long period of austerity. We were told, well, if the government spends more, there'll be more debt. Mm. That'll create more inflation, supposedly. Mm. We've got the inflation anyway, even with, even with austerity. So mm, uh, may as well spend the money. Uh, but, you know, and all of that just raises the question how do you balance it all out yeah. how do, if we're going to spend more and fix all of these things where does the money come from where, and, and, and what do we spend on first that's the other where the priorities there are always mm. going to be priorities in these things but I suppose you say well okay in the past the government maybe you might suggest that this current government perhaps tended to favour the private sector the more wealthy but mm. even they you know get problems when, when things start breaking down they, you know they find the roads they drive on have potholes the, mm. uh, the classrooms that they send their kids to I suppose to send to private schools, but even so, the basics of life still seem to not quite function. Surely at some level they realise that and can direct funds there. Well, you fly your private jet over the pothole drive. I suppose you do, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it is, but you touch on it there. I mean, the real issue is the is the fact that the wealth divide is mm. getting so much greater. Mm. So I wonder whether Britain is broken for the wealthy. I suspect not. No, but there are certain basic things, you know, power supplies. I mean, the, the, the absolute things you don't replicate, even if you are wealthy. You don't build yourself an environment that has no interaction with the rest. Mm. So you have to use some of these things yourselves. So the, even, even the wealthy would begin to say, hang on a second, this stuff just isn't functioning as it should. Yeah, well, I mean, Rishi did actually have to Pay, I think he paid it himself to have that extra power put oh, in no. to the local exchange <laughs> so that they could eat his swimming pool. Oh, so, that's important, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I mean, every, they, you know, they are suffering. But three million people last year yeah. supposedly used a food bank. I mean, that's, you know, we are a civilised society and we get numbers like that. Poverty is real and Mm. getting worse, as you said, the the wealth gap is there. So the question then is, okay, supposedly there may or may not be in the next 12 months a change of government. Yeah. Uh, What would be top of the list? How do you square this? How do you deal with the incoming administration, the old administration? We all know it didn't work. So now you have to say, well, what would be the priorities of an incoming administration? How would you actually make it work without also screwing up the economy? Yeah. And you talk about priorities. 
I mean, they're all priorities, aren't they? Just yeah. say, well, let's not worry about the health service too much. Yeah. Let's focus on education. Well, let's not focus on the fact that people are starving. Yeah. You've got to do all of that. Or the fact that trains don't run yeah. on time. Or the base. Or people travel over 100 miles to find an NHS dentist. Yeah. I mean, you know, You've the got most to do basic all level. of those. Yeah. There's no prioritising. It's like everything has to be fixed. How do you do that when we, we have come down so far? But is mm. it just Britain or is it the, the, the whole of the world facing this problem? I right? think it tends to be much more. I think there's a sense that systems in Britain are not being maintained. This maintenance principle, the idea that you not only have to have a system, you have to make sure it actually works. Mm. You know, it's all very well having ambitions to do X, Y, and Z, which the government puts out there. But if it doesn't actually, on the day, you know, you ring up, you actually get someone, you make an appointment, something happens. But are we, is that because there's something in the British nature which is just a little bit overly bureaucratic? I do know mm. when I moved back here from Australia, mm. I, I thought there's just a lot that's not right about this country mm. that I wasn't aware of within, within Australia, that things seem to, to function fairly normally. Yeah. And is that because we just make stuff too complicated? I'm not sure that's I think it's to do with using the money that we have. I mean, there is an argument that we are living beyond our means, that we have too much of this stuff, which we thought we could afford and now we can't afford, and we have to cut our coat according to our cloth, and we're still trying to keep but everything what sorts going. Of things? Well, well, you know, some of the most basic things, but if we have a certain number of hospitals, but we don't actually have enough medical staff to run them properly. No, but we've certainly got enough sick people, though, well, you know, exactly. which is the determining factor. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, uh, you know, so all of these things have to be done. Mm. And well, it's so an impossible question we're asking Well, this it's week. a question we're going to ask George Mombio, mm. who the Guardian columnist and writer of environmental subjects, but on many other subjects as well. And he's going to give us his take on this, and he joins us now. Uh, so, George, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, just, you know, as we've been saying in our introduction there, there's just so much that has to be done. Is Britain so badly broken, you know, repairing it in any way that is sort of going to be acceptable to the vast majority of the population is just going to take years? It will take years. There's no doubt about that. It's not impossible, but there's this huge backlog. Um, it's a cumulative underfunding of public services, and that really goes back over 40 years. We've had 40 years with a few breaks of austerity, of privatisation, of the dumping of costs onto the public, um, the transferring of profits into the private domain. And the result of that is that many of our public services are in a really shocking state. But the dumping of costs, that's an interesting phrase. So that's sort of like the, the user pays type approach. Is that what you're talking about there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a transfer of of, of costs from either the public sector or its um, privatised outlets yeah. to individuals. Um, e even when we're not sort of handing over money to them, often it costs us a, a lot more. So, for instance, there's been a near collapse of um, special educational needs provision in many parts of the country, and some parents, as a result, have had to give up their jobs in order to look after their children who are not being provided for. And so that's a massive cost to to the household. Yes, yeah, so it's a self-defeating um, thing, in effect. Yes, I mean, it's, it's not saving any money. It's just transferring who gets the money and who has to pay that money. Now, I'm interested you talked about 40 years, because what you're then 
saying is that this began in the Thatcher era. It's, yeah, it's not just yeah. the austerity that we've seen over the last decade. Is it re- mm. Has it really been going on that long? Because, I mean, obviously, Thatcher era of privatisation, but, I mean, many people remember the winter of discontent in the 70s when, again, things didn't seem to work mm. that well. Um, you know, is it really possible to draw a line and say, no, no, it was when Thatcher came in that it started? It, it's not a clear line because some of the underinvestment goes back even further, and particularly with water and sewerage. I mean, that's... That's a real shocking failure, which seems to survive all changes of government. Um, You know, the last time there was really serious sustained investment was in the Victorian era. And we are just way behind. We have pumping stations which are suitable for um, half the size of the population we have today. Um, We have water treatment works which are just antiquated they're falling apart um, i mean everything is falling apart the 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 rate at which they've been replacing leaking pipelines means that it would take 2000 years to get the network up to scratch and this is it it, it is a long standing failure but that failure was accelerated by neoliberalism which is what Thatcher in particular represented. But you, know, we, you give an example there, though, with, with our, you know, the plumbing is pretty old in this country, whether it's in the house or underground. So is that, I mean, that is part of the problem, isn't it? The country's just so old. There's just so much legacy stuff, which is expensive to replace. Yeah, I mean, it's not an excuse to say we're an old country because there's plenty of countries old and new which do invest or have invested um, and make a much better job of some of these public services than we do. But the, these are political decisions. And very often the the political arithmetic is, well, we're not going to reap the benefits if we invest now because it's going to take 10 years for that investment to be felt and whoever's in power then will be the beneficiary of it. And so political short-termism is kind of baked in, but there's also the ideology and there's ideologies which say, the state shouldn't be competent. The state shouldn't be spending money. The state shouldn't be providing public services except the absolute bare minimum. And the more we manage to carve off and the less we provide, the greater display of of our macho prowess that represents. Isn't, well, we, isn't the ideology actually not not that the state shouldn't be competent, but that the private sector is more competent in doing these things and that if we can buy in experience and fiscal discipline, that's actually a better way to do it. And he asked that question with a straight face, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the triumph, triumph of hope over experience, isn't it? <laughs> you think? But I, mean, but, I mean, the argument is, isn't it, that, you know, we privatise water. They, those privatised companies should be the ones who are doing all this maintenance. They, they just haven't been doing it. So that must mean the regulator hasn't been tough enough on them. Well, it hasn't, but there's also an inbuilt structural problem here that when you privatise a public service like water, you are asking the private companies to do two completely different and contradictory things. One of them is to supply the public service and at the uh, best value possible. The other is um, to pursue their fiduciary duties to their shareholders, which is to maximise revenue. And the two things are simply not compatible with each other. You can't optimise both variables. And so, yes, it's true that there were big problems with our water and sewerage system even before privatisation. But those problems have become much worse because of those split incentives. And we've seen 72 billion, in fact, I'm probably out of date by now, but a year ago, it was 72 billion pounds had been uh, directed to, to shareholders as dividends. 
all that money and much more should have been invested in the network to upgrade sewerage and upgrade the water piping system and all the other things that are failing. All right, so we're talking about the water system here, and that is, you know, by a sort of general consensus, one of the worst areas uh, of broken Britain. But if you take something like schools, for example, you've seen terrible pictures of classrooms uh, where kids are wearing huge coats because it's too cold, where we know that the concrete that's there is faulty and all these kind of things. Now, that isn't privatised in any meaningful sense. It's maybe localised um, with, with councils. So again, what is the issue there? Because that is a place where, in the current system, public money should be being invested. Yes, yeah, so the issue here is austerity. You know, it's these, it's these two great fists crunching the public sector. One of them is privatisation and the other is austerity. And in this case, absolutely austerity is what we're looking at. Labour had something called building schools for the future. It was beset with problems. It wasn't perfect, um, not least because they tried to do as much as possible in right across the public sector through something called the Private Finance Initiative, which has turned out to be an absolute catastrophe, as some of us predicted at the time. But they were actually doing what they said, and they were building schools for the future, building new, putting up new buildings, repairing old buildings, and they were spending around £8 billion a year. Um, in 2010, the Conservatives scrapped that um, and there's been a massive and rising repair backlog ever since. That, that was calculated in 2021 as £11 billion, but this was before we ran into this issue of aerated concrete, this this sort of aero-like stuff, um, which has got um, an expected lifespan of 30 years, but in many cases has just been left and left and left. And now the ceilings are collapsing and it's been only a matter of luck that they haven't collapsed on classrooms full of children yet. Yeah, it was amazing, isn't it? That first of all, 30 years would be seen as being acceptable. You know, if you yeah. if you if you were running a business and something was going to last 30 years, you'd have it on a spreadsheet somewhere saying, right, we've got to replace that in mm-hmm. 25 years uh, yeah, but it seems yeah. to seems to get forgotten about and well you're saying that's a business would do that uh, well, yeah. that kind of goes back to the idea that perhaps well water private companies sector aren't doing, doing it, it. well maybe because they don't know what they've got as well that's that's part of the problem is that when you inherit a, a public asset to the to the companies actually know the state of what they've in, inherited and what they're supposed to be looking after but i mean the broader question is through all of this i mean it, and it gets down to regulations generally almost wherever you look if you look at for example uh, you know the, the the situation with fire hazards uh, you know, and, and using material which is hazardous. After the Grenfell disaster. Uh, after Grenfell as one example. It's just who's got their eye on the ball through all of this? It's it's as though, you know, we're not looking close enough at almost any aspect of life. And of course, the, the really biggest failure of all is the environmental failure where, mm. you know, we, we are stacking up enormous problems for the future and politicians are actively turning away from it, pretending not to be aware of it, trying not to see what the issue is. And and so, I mean, but again, it's not an inevitability. It doesn't have to be like this. These are political choices. So, for instance, with Grenfell, there were loads of political choices made before that disaster happened. And there were loads of inflection points at which local government or central government could have said, um, these red lights are flashing. We should respond to that. We should respond to these warnings. They failed to do so again and again. And they were warned individually. People within Grenfell Tower constantly tried to raise the alarm about the fire hazard. And they were warned at the national level as well. But it just they just did not 
heed those warnings. They didn't respond. Because to the question, because the question was, who pays for it? Wasn't mm-hmm. it? That was the problem. I mean, if it was very clear that there was the money available, then it would it would happen. But uh, you know, the government was trying to say it's local authorities. Local authorities yeah. were trying to say, well, it's the residents or the developers. Everyone was saying, don't care who it is, so long as it's not us. Because the reason they're saying it is because the funds aren't there. And George, that's the problem, isn't it? That you know, we are as a society used to a certain level of service, public service, and. Could we, is it possible we actually can't afford that? Our, our, our punching power as a, as, a, as a world power isn't such now that we have the funds to be able to do all these things properly and we have to, the awful phrase, cut our coat according to our cloth. Well, well it's quite striking what we find we can afford. So, for instance, um, in the bank bailout, the government issued £124 billion in loans and share purchases. Um, in the pandemic, it spent uh, 300 or 400 billion pounds, depending on which estimate you believe. Um, huge amounts of that money in the pandemic were inc- uh, incidentally squandered. Um, all those corrupt contracts, a VIP lane for PPE, test and trace, a total catastrophe, Nightingale hospitals. Yeah, they're throwing money around like water. But as soon as there's something you really need, as soon as uh, there's something particularly which the poorest in society need, like the people in the Grenfell Tower, then, oh, sorry, we can't hear you. There's no money. There's no such thing as a magic money tree. Oh, boy, there is a magic money tree. When they want to shake it, loads of fruit falls down. Um, and, and, And I'm not a... Um, someone who's committed to the idea of modern monetary theory. I don't know if if you 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 you've followed mm, this. We're, we're very aware. Yes, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. you are. Yes, um, but you know the the response to the pandemic is po- possibly a partial vindication of it. Um, you know that <clears throat> what it shows is that um, the government doesn't have to raise all the money that it spends. Um, that um, it can basically magic spending into existence. Um, that's what governments do. Um, and that, that doesn't all have to be inflationary. Of course, you know, it can be inflationary. It depends on the circumstances. And it has, and it has, obviously, it has been as well this time. But, the, that, but that was nothing to do with MMT per se. That was the fact that the money that was created was to help us out and it went into people's bank accounts and there was too much cash. Yeah sitting in people's bank yeah, accounts yeah. And, and we were putting too much demand and on the QE stuff that meant just the money exist. went in the wrong place basically yeah. Yeah. yes yes that's right but, but you're right I mean it has partially invigilated hasn't it in that, mm-hmm. I mean government spend, the government can spend more than it's getting in in tax so long as it's sort of in line with GDP growth, and it can be expanding a little bit beyond that. It's just a question of getting it out of kilter, isn't it? That's the, yeah. that's the concern. And again, you know, all these are choices. You know, I, I keep coming back to this, and sorry to be be repetitive, but you know, a situation like Grenfell Tower, you had these um, people who aren't customarily disregarded by governments. Um, many of them were immigrants, or you know, recently, or they or or their uh, parents had come come from abroad. Many of them were very poor. And they just passed over. We saw uh, something similar with the post office scandal, um, with all, all those false false convictions. Um, people like that don't get listened to. But Nigel Farage, his bank account at Coots gets stopped. Mm, Instant very action. Issue. Boof. Yeah. They're all well, the government's all over it like a rash. We've got to do this something about politics. this appalling scandal. This is all politics, George, and the, the situation, the system we have, the democratic system we have, means that politicians think in five-year terms most of the time. Uh, they need to get re-elected. 
it's only natural that they will tend towards to favour those who they think make it more likely that they will remain in power to do the things they want to do. And that's not going to change in the next year, two years, three years, four years. So how on earth do we tackle this? Well, this is the thing that we need to resist. You know, when, when we see politicians responding to special interests, when we see them effectively truncating democracy because they're not listening to the people as a whole, but they're listening to lobby groups or listening to particular powerful people, then that's what we should be mobilising against. And in fact, that is the stuff of politics. And I'm afraid it's quite disappointing to see how Labour is missing open goal after open goal at the moment, where it could be um, standing up against what is effectively corruption is 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 a response to um, particular commercial interests rather than to to the people of this nation, um, and it, it's it's what should be right at the heart of political choice. I mean the the greatest failure in uh, failures in politics come about as a result of the spending of money into politics. They come about um, as a result of campaign financing and all the other finance which is thrown around in the political sphere, ensuring that democracy gets supplanted by plutocracy. And that's what we should be resisting day in, day out. But how do we do that? How do we take that on? Because it, it is something in the end that can only be done through politics and there's no incentive for them to change it, is there? Well, I mean, there might be incentives for other parties to change it. There's not much incentive for the Tories to change that, of course. You know, and the trouble is that Labour is trying to play the same game. They're trying to raise as much money as possible. But, you know, there's a golden opportunity here to say we're going to clean up politics by putting a, a maximum, a, a much um, smaller maximum level. In fact, we don't have a maximum level on, on individual donations, do we? We have a maximum level on the amount that a party can take, but not on um, how much any one person can contribute to that amount. So you end up with this sort of oligarchic funding where a small number of people can supply the bulk of a party's funds. And then they achieve as a result, massive disproportionate influence over politics. Um, and there's a golden opportunity for Labour to say, this is corrupt, let's end it. And it seems like uh, it's not an insurmountable problem there's two things going on. One is that we've got this growing inequality within the country. So the Gini coefficient has gone, uh, it's at 35.7, uh, or it was last year. In the late 70s, it was 25. So this is mm -hmm. the idea of the Gini coefficient yeah. is if you take two people, two random people, uh, the, the chance of their income being exactly the same. So the larger mm -hmm. it is, then the, the greater the range of income. So it's gone from 25 to 36 in the last 50 years yeah. so we've got a lot of people getting very wealthy and then the people who are struggling the people the three million people who were on food banks last year so that's that that is the one issue and that's been going since actually before thatcher you know that yeah goes back a long that way. time bt before thatcher so <laughs> uh so that's one issue so the and then the other issue is well okay if you tax people more at the top end so you start to reduce that inequality then you do have more money available mm. for some of these public services. It seems obvious. And then you see the, the, problem, you, problem with, the problem with that is the wealthy people will say, but we don't want to be taxed. And yet at Davos last week, they were all there saying tax us more. Some were. Some were. Some were. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the problem. Is, I mean, you know, if you like, the, 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 the experiments that have been made, even the trust experience, um, suggests that the financial markets are very... 
very yeah. able to change the world in in, in a brief yeah. moment. Yeah. And if they don't like what they hear, they can do that. And that has real world economic effects on our ability to do all the things that we want to do. Mm. It does. Does. No, 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 I don't think it is. I think it has a real world effect on those people uh, who hold those the, those mm. assets. Uh, I don't think it has too much influence on the well, I mean, what's puts, your point on, yeah. George? I think you're, you're talking about the markets, which is very different to what we're talking about, which is how governments and society fund the... Yeah, but government, but they can only fund it if they have the money to do it, which is when the markets at least are willing to lend money well, to the government. We, we, rely, t- we mean, rely too much on the... I mean, you, George, I George what, do, you, do you think uh, this is nonsense, or do you think I'm on to okay, I mean, George was talking about modern monetary theory. It's very know. little to do with the market. So he didn't really. completely back it. George, no, let's I, I, I think there's loads of opportunities to raise taxes in ways which are just not going to touch 99% of people. So, for instance, raising the top rate of capital gains tax to meet the top rate of income tax, um, there's quite a few billions in that. A Robin Hood tax on financial transactions, you could do pretty well out of that. Land value taxation, you know, taxing taxing the most valuable property. Yeah. Um, there, there's Just a tax on tax on wealth generally. Yeah, yeah. Than, I mean, there's yeah. lots of opportunities here. And what will happen is that the rich people will say, oh, I'll leave the country. Whereupon the great majority of people will say, good riddance to you. Here's a one-way ticket. Sod off. <laughs> you know, if, if you're yeah. not going to... But then those people, if their people aren't there, they're not going to be paying tax. Well, I mean, they, they do they, leave. I mean, the fact is, they don't. You know, they always threaten yeah. to. But unless we've got a full-on Venezuela situation, they 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 don't. You know, they they've got homes here. They've got kids at school. Um, they'll rumble and grumble about it, but then they very seldom act on it. And those who do are generally the most antisocial and unpleasant of the lot. And no one would miss them. Yeah, and they'll bring house prices down. You know, if they all go. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. I mean, because that, that is the other element of all of this, isn't it? As to where money goes. Mm. I mean, the average house price to earnings ratio is now over seven compared to mm. three in 1996. In London, it's up over 11. So, I mean, that's an, that's another issue. First of all, how do our kids afford to buy houses? But also those of us who are paying a mortgage, we've got so little money left over. Of course, we don't want to pay more tax because we've paid it to the bank for our mortgage. And funnily enough, banks seem to be doing quite well out of all of this. But don't worry, the government's got a solution. And, and the criminal justice bill, which is passing through Parliament now, if you are found rough sleeping, you can be fined £2,500, which of course you'd have in your back pocket, or imprisoned. So they will provide accommodation for homeless people, but only in a prison cell. Yes. Well, I mean, you don't need the tent then, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> move the tent off. But, but, I mean, the point of all this was, so the conclusion we're sort of saying is we need more money, and that money needs to be spent in a long-term way. That's yeah. the fundamental. Yeah. And That's how it. do we incentivise that? Because even the governments we're talking about, perhaps potentially a Labour government later this year or early next, with the money that we're talking about, the tax potential, they are still going to want to stay in power. And OK, they may not mm. have to kowtow necessarily to the interest groups we were talking about, but they're going to want to stay in power. So they will be still working on that five-year cycle yeah. and winning the arguments on that alone. I think a lot of it's about narrative. You know, the Labour is absolutely transfixed by this Tory tax and spend narrative. You know, we can't be seen to be taxing and spending. And you think, why can't you be seen to be taxing and spending? What what militates against that? Why can't you make the case that we need to mend this country and um, mend this country would be a pretty good slogan, I think, for the Labour Party right now. Um, and that that's going to require long-term spending and that what a responsible government that cares about its people does is long-term spending. 
and that getting past that short-term cycle becomes uh, your your selling point. It, it becomes the thing which people would vote for if you only made it your selling point. But instead, we have all oh, we. We're going to stick to Tory spending plans because otherwise we'd be seen as irresponsible. No, it's exactly the opposite. You just they're just buying into the narrative of their opponents, and it's very disappointing to see. Is it all just money though, uh, and you know, long-term investment? And I, I just wonder whether in this country, I spent a quarter of a century outside the country. I came back and I thought my first impression was, you know, Brits, we have a, a great way of making things more complicated than they seem to need mm-hmm. to be. And I just wonder whether, you know, we need to almost go through regulations and simplify things and say what can and can't be done. I'll give you an example. So we know councils are going bankrupt and we know a mm-hmm. chunk of them are going bankrupt because, they, you know, there's, I think, how many now have issued a, voluntarily issued a Section 114 notice? We've got Slough, Croydon, Thurrock. Woking, I think. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Woking, that was going to, go, going to be my point. Some of these are going bankrupt because they just don't have enough money to provide the services. Woking is going bankrupt because it used taxpayers' money or ratepayers' money to invest in infrastructure because they had this grand plan that Woking was going to mm. be this fantastic new city that was, you know, going to be a, a growth hub for the region. And it all went badly wrong. Money that was just spent yeah. just was was wasted. And now they're paying for that. So simply saying to councils, hang on a sec, just back in your box. Just provide the services and we'll make sure you've got enough money. And that's just one example. I'm sure you go through all sorts of other walks of life and other, other industries like train companies. You could probably simplify, you know, what their operating requirement is without necessarily renationalizing them. Some of these things will need to be renationalized as well, I'm sure. But we've got, we've got to get the, you know, simplify things so it's very clear what the objectives are. And, and where you, responsibility can, And where responsibility is. And then, yeah, and then, then you can put money behind it at that point. You might find you need a lot less. I mean, I'm a bit wary about this um, call for simplifying regulations because, of course, it's what <laughs> certain very predatory businesses have been calling for for a long time, which and simplification very often means deregulating them. I think we need to be very clear about what exactly we're calling for in circumstances like this. You know, there are... There have been some very foolish council spending decisions, and that, you know, there's no inoculation against stupidity. There's there's lots of silly things are done, um, regardless of the environment in which they take place. But I don't think anyone would be against. Uh, sorry, anyone on my side of the political divide would be against the idea that councils should be investing more in public services and should be trying to improve their, their towns and cities. Um, if if not in a sort of uh, very self-aggrandizing and foolish way, as, as we've been talking about. But, um, you know, and, and of course, councils are absolutely strapped for cash, not least because of this highly regressive and extremely limited council tax um, banding system, which hasn't been updated since 1991, where the richest people pay only a little bit more than the very poorest people. And a little bit better than the poll tax, but not much. Not much, in, indeed. It's it's not quite a flat tax, but it's a very gently sloping yeah. one. So David Cameron, when he, because he really termed the phrase broken Britain, didn't 
didn't he, when he was uh, uh, pitching is, for isn't power. Isn't he back in government now? Uh, yes, he's back. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's uh, back in a lot quieter, though, isn't he? But he talked about, uh, I mean, a very different broken Britain. He talked about selfishness, uh, behaving as if your choices had no consequences, children without fathers, kind of perish the thought, schools without discipline, reward without uh, effort, crime without punishment, rights without responsibilities. Yeah. That was his broken Britain. So I feel like the dialogue has moved on a little bit from from that. And the sort of broken Britain that we're talking about, I think you're right, maybe it's a vote winner if the Labour Party were just to embrace it. But they... well, fixing Britain. Well, do you yeah, think they yeah. will embrace it, George? Do you think you think that the Keir Starmer government, whatever it says, perhaps at this point, in order to get to power, do you think they actually get what you're saying? The problem is, if they don't say it before they're in power, then they won't have a mandate to do it once they're in power. Yeah, and and the media can very easily turn on them and say, "Well, no one voted for this because you didn't put it to the people." And in fact, it would be something of a deception of the people to to campaign on one manifesto when having a completely different one in mind. So um, I, I don't think he'll that Starmer will show any more courage in office than he's so far shown out of office, and that amounts to very it's rather little. depressing, isn't it? Yeah, it is rather depressing. But and so what happens then? We just get more privatization. It feels like that's going to be the answer. Well, if these things are if these things are broken, if we can't manage to fund our schools, we'll just have to privatize more of it. If the National Health Service can't function uh, as it currently is, we'll just have to privatize more of it. You know, it's it's just the, it seems to be the you know the answer over the last yeah. uh, couple yeah. of decades. Yeah, no, and 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 and, and that was more or less what Blair and Brown did with the whole private finance initiative was, was you know, instead of just stumping up the money in the usual way from government coffers, um, they tried to bridge the gap by bringing in private companies effectively to manage and run public services. And what the effect of that was, was to make um, the, the uh, balance of spending look better at the time but to load the future with massive liabilities, which have been absolutely crippling to um, hospitals and many other parts of the public sector, as they're having to pay off these huge debts to 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 the private sector. And I think that's, you know, I, I, Starmer's not going to do another private finance initiative, but he's going to try to find ways of. Um, solving these crises without actually spending more money. And frankly, there isn't a way. You've just got to spend more money. So not being a conspiracy theory, we're not conspiracy theorists on this podcast. No, no. Well, and you know, unless we find that actually it's very good for ratings, in which case we might do a bit of a pivot on that. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, we're not conspiracy theorists as it currently stands. And yet a conspiracy theorist would say, isn't it interesting, isn't it? If you, if you let all of these systems collapse then it makes it easier to to privatise. Uh, privatise. And, mm-hmm. you know, so is that really actually part of the but agenda? That, that is assumes it, a long-term is it not, term Is it not neglect? Yeah, long term they don't have. It's not neglect. It's actually a long-term strategy. Yeah, well, you can you can see what it's doing in dentistry. This is exactly what the approach has been in dentistry. It's, it's to put these Im- impossible conditions on NHS dentists, including these units of dental care, which uh, where you never quite meet the costs of, the, of, of what the dentist is spending, um, you effectively load the dentist with all sorts of conditions, which just make, you know, you, you have to be a very altruistic person now to supply NHS dental care because you lose money. And the people, the only people still supplying it are subsidizing it out of their private practice. Um, and 
But but you know, there's been no government announcement saying we're shutting down all NHS dental care. They're, they're doing it stealthily, but and the effect it, is just the same. It's the same. And Keir yeah. Starmer's answer: state-sponsored toothbrushing. That's, uh, that's <laughs> yes. as far as it goes. I mean, yeah. I, as, as we draw this to a conclusion, George, I, mean, I suppose that the, the point you're making is that if Keir Starmer tomorrow said, you know, your 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 slogan, um, "Men Britain." Uh, that there would be a public support for that, that he would not be imperiling his chances of getting into power. It is a vote winner. If that were really the case, wouldn't he do it? I mean, the, the left's mm. case has always been, well, if we put the Jeremy Corbyn case, if we put all this out there, in the end, people will support but it. But you've said yourself on this podcast many times before, not that you've been mm. repetitive, no, but, no. of course, I am but, uh, that he's just too scared. You know, he's yeah. just doesn't, he doesn't want to lose the election. Does he have and let's look at what he's scared of. I think he's more mm. scared of the billionaire media than, than he is of the people. Mm. And that is is a huge part of the problem here, that we're, we, we've got this incredibly dominant, powerful group of offshore billionaires who are telling us what to think and telling us how to act. And somehow they've been allowed to become a more important political force than the electorate has. Yeah, and a BBC that's scared to move. Yeah, well, yeah, too right. right. But the next generation doesn't read newspapers, so maybe there could be relief in that. Except, I suppose they get influenced in other ways. Well, yeah, by, you know, by billionaires overseas. Well, and it's not as if billionaires don't own social media. Yeah, also certainly. true. Also true. Yeah. George, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, thank you. I can't very. say it's been an optimistic um, uh, session, but it's been really interesting, and uh, yeah. we it's, shall see. It's good to talk. Right. Right. Hopefully, get you on again soon, George. For Thanks. Sure. No, Thanks, lovely George. to talk. Thanks so much, guys. Cheers. Then. Take care. Bye. Bye. All very interesting stuff. So next. Next week, mm, uh, what yes. are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about miscarriages of justice. Because no, something else that's not working. It clearly isn't. I mean, the, the, the system to try and look at cases that could represent injustice, and mm. we know with what happened with the post office yeah. workers, of course, that injustices can persist for a long time. And the system doesn't, even when they know that these are miscarriages of justice, they seem to take up an incredibly long time to go through. To such a point that. that so many people have died yeah. uh, and haven't seen justice. Yeah, and as, well beyond the post office, there are lots of individual cases and mm. we've had several in the past few years where people clearly have been put in prison for many years and come out and the system hasn't worked they when eventually their cases have been brought back to court they have been exonerated no um but there's is this occasional or is this a systemic problem that i we've think got? it's systemic i think there's wow. a lot of a lot of this going on and and the problem is yes you know obviously most people in prison probably say that they're innocent that is true but there are some horrendous cases of people who clearly are not guilty of what they've been put in prison for and they lose 15, 20 years of their lives. I mean, even up until mm. recently, there was a horrible thing where the Home Office would charge people for board and lodging for the amount of time they'd actually been in prison, I even know. if they shouldn't Incredible, have been there. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, well, it that, shows the attitude that's yeah. out there. Mm. And the system, which is the, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, it absolutely creaks. And we're going to talk to someone who knows this really well, Glyn Maddox, who is uh, a very prominent solicitor campaigning on a lot of these cases, and get a sense of why it doesn't work and how we are guilty really of of injustice to a fairly large number of people who shouldn't be in prison but are just because we haven't got the resources or time or expertise to put into actually sorting their cases out. Well, and you have spent a bit of time inside, haven't you? Not actually inside. You were never going to mention vi that. Visiting people uh, rather than actually. That is true. That is true. So I'd, I'd be interested in finding out more about that well, as well next week. We'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Okay. That's next week on The Why Curve. Join us for that. Have a great week. Bye. The Why Curve.